it's such a privilege to be with you, to be with God's people, and uh, I am so thankful for the way God has already spoken to us. I don't know uh, what stood out to you, but I love that line in Psalm 118 where uh, God says that his steadfast love endures forever, and he actually calls on us to remember that. Uh, let the people of God say his steadfast love endures forever. That is awesome that God loves us, that God has chosen, if you're a believer, God has chosen you before the foundation of the world, that he is for you, and uh, that he has revealed himself to you, and uh, he still speaks through what he has spoken, and that's really why we're here today. We're here to uh, enjoy God and to listen to God, and so if you'll take your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 11. We want to listen as God speaks to us. We're going to look at Luke chapter 11, and I want us to talk a little bit about prayer. And we're actually going to spend uh, the next several weeks looking at Luke chapter 11, verses 2 through 13, and thinking about Jesus' instructions here on prayer, how to pray, uh, why we should pray, what to pray, why we should be confident when we pray. But I thought that we could begin today with a, just sort of a call to prayer, or at least an explanation as to why we're going to be spending so much time learning how to pray. Because there's a, a sense in which really this should be easy. It is a command to pray. We know that we should pray. And it's a privilege to pray, and most of us would not say that we're very good at prayer. And so it seems obvious that we should take some time to learn how to pray, but there is knowing that something's important intellectually and knowing it in your heart. And that's often where the problem is when it comes to prayer. Because for many of us, while there is no way that we would ever say prayer is unimportant, we also don't actually make much of a priority out of it individually. How many of us could look at our last week and say, you know, number one priority last week, learning how to pray, prayer. Or even in our churches. I think we often don't make a priority out of prayer for a lot of different reasons. Sometimes it's because we're discouraged about prayer. Maybe we wouldn't say it out loud, but in our hearts, we're really wondering about prayer. We tried. Sometimes it's because we're overconfident in ourselves. We think we already know what is there to learn about prayer. And sometimes it's just because we're worldly, honestly. And the fact is there's a lot of pressure from the world not to think of prayer as something very significant. In our culture right now, prayer is not really valued at all. It's more like, oh, you're, you're sweet, you're cute, you want to you wanna pray. I mean, if you say to someone at work, you know, I really want to make a difference in this world. And they say, that's great, I think that is great, what are you going to do? And you say, I am going to devote the rest of my life to prayer they're not usually going to be that impressed. It's more like, 
Uh, I thought that you were going to do something. And even when we think about the church, I know CBC has been around for a while, but it's my beginning at the church, and we're thinking through a vision for the future. That's what we're doing here these weeks. And it's, first of all, pray. Study the Bible and pray. And to the world, some people would be like, wait, what are you talking about? I thought we wanted to go somewhere. I thought we wanted to do something as a church. Pray? Pray? Are you serious? So maybe we know that prayer is important, but it doesn't always feel important. Or at least there's a temptation for it not to feel important, which is why before we spend the next several weeks learning how to pray, I want to explain why we need to be talking about prayer. And I want to do that primarily just by asking Luke, why does he think we need to learn about prayer? Because in Luke chapter 11, verses 2 through 13, he spends a significant amount of time trying to show us what Jesus has to say about prayer. It's a pretty big section on prayer. And this is not the only place for Luke either. Out of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John would maybe give Luke a little competition. But out of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Luke's definitely the one who places the biggest emphasis on prayer. Some people have described Luke as the gospel of prayer. There are nine prayers of Jesus in Luke, and seven of those prayers you only find here. There are two parables about prayer that you only find in Luke. The most common word for prayer you find in the New Testament 84 times, and 34 of those times are in Luke. When you think about who in the New Testament talks the most about prayer, you probably think the Apostle Paul, and that's, that's probably right, but Luke actually uses the word for petitionary prayer even more than Paul does. So Luke places a major emphasis on prayer, and what I want to do is sort of bounce off verse 1 here. If you look down at verse 1, that's the context for Luke chapter 11, verses 2 through 13, and I'm going to make three statements from the context that I help, I think will help you Understand why Luke has so much to say about prayer. In other words, if you were going to ask Luke, why do you think we should spend the next couple weeks learning from Jesus how to pray, what would Luke have to say? Three statements. First, I think he would say, prayer is an essential part of following Jesus. And that sounds sort of simple, I guess, and it is. But I want to show you how Luke shows us that even in the way he structures the gospel. So we're looking at Luke 11, verses 1 through 13, this whole section on prayer the next couple weeks. But the first question that you ask as you approach this passage is how does this section fit into the gospel of Luke and what he's doing? And that's an important question that you always have to be asking because Luke's a historian. And so as you read Luke, he's telling us real stories about what happened to Jesus, but he's also a preacher. And so as he writes, what's he doing? He's writing true stories, but he's bringing together all these true stories about Jesus in a certain way to make certain points. So these stories aren't here randomly. Like, oh, you remember when that happened? Let me write that. Uh, wait, do you remember when that happened? Let me write that. No. He's organized these stories in a certain way 
for a certain reason. And so this teaching here on prayer in verses 1 through 13 fits into a larger section in Luke. It has a context. You could take whole chapters of Luke, say chapters 1 through 4. Luke's trying to do this. This is the theme. And chapters 5 through 8, this is the theme. And this little section on prayer comes in the middle of a bigger section in Luke where he's giving us the basics of discipleship. You might say the basics of following Jesus. And so one way we see how important prayer is to the Christian life is in the fact that this teaching on prayer that we're going to be looking at comes towards the beginning of a section in Luke that's all about what it means to follow Jesus. And that's actually why we've begun in the middle of Luke the past couple weeks, if you're wondering. It's a weird place to begin in the middle, but I began here at CBC kind of in the middle. You've been going as a church for a while. You're disciples of Jesus. We know why we're here. We want to be a church that follows Jesus and that helps other people follow Jesus. That's a big part of our vision at CBC, discipleship. And if you break Luke down into sections or themes, you might say, you find in Luke chapter 9, all the way up till chapter 18 or 19, Jesus showing his followers what it means to be one of his disciples. This is like discipleship 101, really, for Luke. If you want to know what's involved in being a follower of Jesus, you can start by looking here. And we need to look here. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Because there are a lot of ideas out there about what it means to follow Jesus. This is Jesus's idea. What does Jesus want his disciples to know, to do? And you know, if you look through these chapters, you start flipping through them, you'll see Jesus teaches us that following him begins with picking up a cross daily. You remember that passage, right? Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 is kind of a surprising passage for the disciples because the disciples had this conception of Jesus in their minds and they had this idea of what it meant to follow him. They had all these ideas. But you know what all their ideas were missing was the cross. The disciples did not think about Jesus and did not think about Jesus's mission and their mission in terms of a cross. They had this whole other agenda of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. And so in chapter 9, Jesus basically says the cross is absolutely central to understanding me and what it means for me to be the Messiah and what it means for you to be one of my followers. And that was really hard for the disciples to understand, obviously. You, you see in Luke chapter 9, verse 44, that Jesus says, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And then verse 45, but they did not understand this saying. And we'll see that they kind of got it, but they didn't really get it. And we're probably further along than they were at this point. But honestly, it's pretty hard for us to understand the centrality of the cross, I think especially when it comes to following Jesus. We get it sometimes, but we don't really get it. I think a lot of the problems that we face in discipleship happen with not understanding the significance of the cross. 
We have ideas about what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be a follower of Jesus and a church even that don't flow out of the significance of what God was doing through Jesus on the cross. And so Jesus has to do a lot of work with these disciples in these chapters, honestly. And this is part of why they're here, I think, to explain the difference the cross makes, the difference the cross makes on discipleship, and the difference, the fact that this is how God is starting to accomplish the salvation promised in the Old Testament should make on the way we think about what it means to follow him. And a lot of what he has to do is negative, really. A lot of Luke 9 through 18 and the instruction on discipleship is kind of negative because Jesus has to keep saying, you know, the cross means this way of relating to God, this way of doing religion, these expectations you had about what life is supposed to be like is not how it's going to be right now, at least. So if you look at verses 46 through chap, uh, verse 62 of chapter 9, for example, you'll see the disciples saying, this is how I think it's going to work. And Jesus saying, no, that's actually not how it's going to work. And then there's a whole lot that he'll do in the chapters that follow using the negative example of the Pharisees. This is what happens when you leave the cross out of religion. But there is a little bit of instruction that is positive. Jesus gives some positive instruction in these chapters as well about discipleship. This is what a disciple is, and this is what a disciple does. And one of his first explanations of what a disciple is, actually, is Mary. In Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42, the story we looked at last week, if you follow the flow. Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 20, Israel rejects Jesus, and yet Jesus is rejoicing in verse 21 because there are some people who are going to be saved, and they're not the people you would expect. He says, God's hidden things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. And that's honestly lesson number one on discipleship. God's doing a big thing through Jesus and the cross. Who is going to understand that? It's only going to happen as a result of divine revelation. And who does God reveal it to? Not the ones you would expect. Not the ones who are wise and understanding, but little children. Now, what's missing in the wise and understanding? Why are they reading the same Bible and not getting it? We could answer that from a divine perspective, I suppose. But we could also answer it from a human perspective. And I think what Luke does in Verse 25 through 37 of chapter 10 is bring up a man who was religious and who had been studying the Bible his whole life and yet was not understanding Jesus and what God was doing through him on the cross. And Jesus does this whole beautiful thing where he uses God's law to reveal that what the man was missing, basically, was humility. You remember the story of the Good Samaritan. He, he didn't see his own need for the cross. So again, that's fundamental to discipleship. How are you going to be one of Jesus' disciples? You obviously need to understand what God's doing through Jesus on the cross. How are you going to understand that, really? God has to reveal it to you, definitely. But who does God reveal it to? The little children. So what's it going to take to understand Jesus and the significance of the cross? It's going to take humility. Now, how does that affect discipleship? 
because that's really where Luke goes in verses 38 through 42 of chapter 10 and then chapter 11. Verses 38 through 42 are almost an illustration of two ways of thinking about discipleship and one way is without the cross because a lot of people think about discipleship like Martha and just being busy doing 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 and of course there's a part of discipleship that is busy because we're commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves but we have to understand there's absolutely nothing more important that we could ever do than sitting at Jesus's feet and listening to his word why because you remember the cross shows us that we're not the hero Jesus is and Luke is trying to show in this section the significance of how God is accomplishing salvation through Jesus on the cross and how how is Mary and Martha an illustration of understanding or not understanding the significance of the cross on discipleship and I think this is important for us as a church because there are a lot of problems out there and, you know, a lot of people want to do a lot of things about those problems. That's, that's not unusual for us as a church. And so you don't need the cross or the gospel for me to come to church and say, hey, there are problems out there that we should feel bad about. And we need to go out there and we need to try to be great people. And we need to try to fix all the problems we see in the world around us. Let's get busy. You can do this. And honestly, the reality is that there are a lot of people who will get excited about that. But you see, you do have to apply the gospel to following Jesus because the gospel is saying something different. It's saying that, yeah, there are a lot of problems out there and there is a solution, but we're not the ultimate solution. Or maybe even to say it better, we're not the hero. Jesus is. And God is solving the problems of the universe first through his work on the cross. The cross is key to understanding how God is going to fix this. And in fact, we can even take that a step further and say the gospel reveals that the only way that people will be helped forever. And the emphasis is on forever. In other words, the only way, the fundamental problem that people have will ever truly be solved is through God using a message about Jesus and what he did through Jesus on the cross. And so that's why... Christian discipleship places such a big emphasis on listening and hearing that message. Are you understanding? This is why priority number one for Jesus is listening. A true disciple of Jesus has seen his need for Jesus. He's been exposed by God's law and he realizes the fundamental problem he has and the fundamental problem that everyone else has is that they are rebels against a holy God and that they're completely unable to obey his law even commands they agree with like the command to love your neighbor as yourself and so of course he recognizes that his only hope is for God to provide a savior not for him to be the savior but to provide a savior for God to provide the savior for him and that he's done that God's done that through Jesus and that's why his first priority as a follower of Jesus is to listen to him before he tries to do anything for him. And I hope you're, you're following me now because I know this is a long extended ex explanation, but how does Luke show us that prayer is important? He puts this instruction on prayer 
right in the middle of a section where he's unpacking what it means to really understand the significance of what God is doing through Jesus on the cross. And that understanding should impact our priorities as Jesus' followers. What do people who know Jesus is the hero do? What do people who understand the central role the cross plays in God's salvation plan do? They listen when God speaks. That's first. We saw that. And then they pray, which is where Luke heads next in verses 1 through 13 of chapter 11, which for me, I'm saying is something sweet. This whole context, because, you know, we're tempted sometimes to make the Christian life and our life together as a church and following Jesus so complicated, you know. And you can understand why to a certain extent, because there's a lot of pressure out there. This is what it means to follow Jesus. Be radical. And that resonates with us. You want to be radical. Jesus said, pick up your cross. You want, to be, you want to do that, and, and you know there's a lot to do, and you don't want to waste your opportunity to do it. Life is so short. I, I know I don't want to waste my life. That's a fear, and we don't want to waste this privilege we have of being a church, and so we're like, what does God want from us? What do we do? What, what are we supposed to be passionate about? There are all these problems out there. We have all these resources. We're so blessed. We can't even believe how blessed we are. Where do we start? Where do we begin? And it feels like so much. And we're, we're, tempting, we're tempted to run there and run here and, and then here and then there again. And yet you look at Luke and fundamentally following Jesus is actually not all that complicated. You want to do something? Sit at Jesus' feet. And listen, and then pray. Devote yourself to the word and prayer. And you hear, you hear me now, because this sounds so ordinary that you might miss it. It's easy to downplay it. It doesn't look great. It maybe doesn't feel great. When you think about this really mature Christian, you probably think of the parable of the Good Samaritan. And yeah, 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 that's true. But... How do you get there? If you want to live all out as a Christian and become a really mature follower of Christ, your priority has to be, one, hearing from God, and two, using what you learn from God's word to speak to God in prayer. That's why we're going to spend all this time the next couple of weeks learning from Jesus how to pray. If you look at the context and how this section on prayer fits into the way that Luke structures his gospel, you'll, you'll see that Luke believes one of the two key priorities we need to focus on as followers of Jesus is prayer, which isn't surprising, actually, if you're following along with Luke, because Luke's done a lot of work in this gospel to show that prayer was one of the key priorities for Jesus. And that's second, a second reason, I think, if you ask Luke why learning to prayer should be a big deal to us. It's because prayer was a big deal to Jesus. And this seems to be something that Luke, especially out of all the gospel writers, seems intent on pointing out to us. Because while obviously all the gospel writers talk about Jesus praying, you'll find that Luke puts it in bold print. 
He says here in Luke 11, verse 1, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. So Luke emphasizes Jesus's prayer life before he dives into Jesus's teaching on prayer. And it's not just here. There are about nine different times when Luke highlights the prayer life of Jesus. And you know, as he does, one thing that's interesting is that as you look at the times that Jesus is praying in the Gospel of Luke, they occur at the most significant moments in Jesus' life and ministry. Luke's definitely making a point. Like, think in your mind about when do you find Jesus praying in Luke? You find him praying first at his baptism. Luke chapter 3, verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized... And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying. Luke's saying, Jesus began his public ministry praying. And did you notice there how Luke says, had been baptized and was praying? So the baptism is over and the praying is going on. And it's as if, as he was in the middle of praying... The Holy Spirit descended down on him in bodily form. And there's more, obviously, in Luke chapter 5. If you turn to Luke chapter 5, verse 16, as Jesus begins to encounter opposition from the religious leadership of his day, Luke tells us, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. And the way this is written, it's habitual. It's his pattern. Just like he prayed at the beginning of his ministry, he bathed his whole ministry in a spirit of prayer. He prayed when he went through difficulties in ministry, and he prayed when he made big decisions in ministry as well. Like take the calling of the disciples in Luke chapter 6, verse 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. This is all-night prayer. In Africa, they loved all-night prayers. And this is actually an all-night prayer. And it's Jesus feeling the need to pray all night long because of the importance of the decision he was making. When day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12. And Jesus didn't stop praying at that point. We see as he goes on to speak about his role as a Messiah and the way he was going to accomplish the work that God had called him to do, he once again is going to God in prayer. Luke chapter 9, verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And there's a sense you get as you're reading the gospel. If there's a down moment and you want to find Jesus, you're going to find him somewhere praying. I think of right before the transfiguration as well in Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. He's praying by himself. He's praying with the disciples. He's praying, he's praying, he's praying as God reveals who he is at his baptism and God reveals who he is at his transfiguration. And then, of course, if we fast forward to the moments right before the crucifixion, even we read Luke chapter 22, verse 39, and he came out and went as was his custom. Luke's like, this was his habit to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray. And Luke tells us that's exactly what Jesus did as well. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and pray. prayed. 
And if we ever get a chance to study this section, you'll see that it comes right after Jesus told the disciples they were going to enter a time that was going to be like a spiritual war. And so the next story, it's like, what does Jesus do as he goes to war? He prays. And then finally, not only did Jesus begin his ministry in prayer, and not only did he make big decisions through prayer, and not only did he respond to difficulties and the triumphs in his life by going to God in prayer, and not only did he prepare to go to the cross by praying, he died praying as well. Jesus died praying. His last words before dying, according to Luke, was a prayer. Luke chapter 23, verse 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And that's actually a quote from, from Scripture. So he died quoting Scripture in prayer. And that's a confident prayer. He went from, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, to, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus lived his whole life praying, which is pretty deep if you think about it. Because Jesus is God. And this is where it gets a little mind-blowing. Enjoy it. The Bible is clear. Jesus is God, which sometimes confuses people because they think if Jesus is God, why is he praying? And of course, one reason people get confused about this is because they forget what the Bible teaches about God existing in three persons. We're Christians, not Unitarians. And Christians believe the Bible teaches us there is one God who exists in three persons. There is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And these are not three separate gods, but they are separate persons who share the same nature. God the Father is not God the Son, and God the Son is not God the Holy Spirit, and God the Holy Spirit is not God the Son, and yet God the Holy Spirit, God the Son, and God the Father are all fully God and truly one God. The Bible is clear. There's only one God who exists in three distinct persons, and one way we see the distinctions between these three persons in the Trinity is in the different role each one of them plays in our salvation. In other words, the three members of the Trinity did different things to save us. And what the Son did specifically to accomplish our salvation was take upon himself genuine humanity. And I know this is, is maybe deep, but it's important to understand why Jesus prayed and even who Jesus was praying to. Because I know sometimes Muslims will ask, how can God pray to God? And that's because they don't understand the Trinity and they don't understand the incarnation either because God the Father did not become man. It was the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who became man and emptied himself, not of the essence of deity. He remained God, but for a time at least, he emptied himself of the glory of being God. And he did that by adding human nature to himself, which means he actually somehow became truly dependent while he lived on earth. He lived within his humanity you might say, while he was on earth, meaning he was truly dependent on the Father and on the Spirit. And while there's mystery in this, of course, and I'm not saying I can explain it all, it means that somehow, while not stopping being God, he was able to live his life in such a way here on earth that he had the complete human experience apart from sin. And that meant, of course, that he had to pray like us, 
He was dependent on prayer. And that's why it's no surprise we read in Luke over and over and over again, like here in Luke 11, one, that Jesus prayed. You can see it. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place. And one reason he prayed is because that's what humans are supposed to do. In Jesus, God is giving us the model of a perfect human life. If we step back and we're like, okay, how is life supposed to be lived according to God? Look at Jesus. It's supposed to be lived out in prayer. And so it's really vital that we stop and ask ourselves, do we pray? We need to learn to pray because it's one of the two big ways understanding the gospel impacts the way we follow Jesus. And because it was central in Jesus' life. And third, a, a third reason I think Luke would say we should give some time to thinking about verses 2 through 13 is because prayer is something we need to learn. That's why he puts it here. The disciples say what? Lord, teach us to pray. It's not enough for us just to ask, do you pray? Otherwise, we wouldn't need a series or even this whole thing in Luke 11. We could just read the command, pray. But we have to go a step beyond that and ask, how exactly do we pray? Lord, Teach us to pray because we actually can get prayer wrong. And the truth is a lot of people do. Which was one of the problems for the disciples if you think about Jesus' day. Because clearly the religious leaders were doing a lot of praying. And so there were all these patterns of prayer and how to pray. And yet they were praying in ways that Jesus would have hated. Because they had nothing to do with what God was actually accomplishing through Jesus. Which I want us to, to kind of feel for a moment. Because that's the pivotal issue going on here. Because the goal for us as a church is not just to pray. This is not just a motivation to any kind of praying. Because it's not just any kind of praying that is central to the life of a follower of Jesus. Because it's not just any kind of praying that Jesus himself was committed to. So it's not like we can just hear a message on prayer and say, what do we do? I mean, we see prayer is important to Jesus. And we see prayer as a key part of being a disciple. So we have to pray. And how should we do that? Well, I guess let's get that on our list of things to do next week. And, and, and check it off once we do it. We have to actually go a little deeper than that and, and think about how what we believe about God and what we believe about the gospel and what God is accomplishing through Jesus on the cross should shape the way we pray. Because the fact is, there's a whole lot of praying that doesn't flow out of faith in God at all or the gospel. Which is why in another place that Jesus teaches his disciples about prayer, he actually begins with how not to pray. You remember Matthew chapter 6? If you turn there for a minute, Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray there as well. This is a different sermon. Uh, so Jesus actually would use material from one sermon in another sermon. He's teaching his disciples to pray here as well because he knew they needed to hear it twice. But one of the differences between this passage 
and the passage in Luke is the fact that before Jesus tells them how to pray in Matthew chapter 6, he tells them how not to pray. He says, and when you pray, verse 15, or verse 16, when you pray, you, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues. Or verse 5, excuse me. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. And what's the problem that Jesus is going after? The problem is not that these people love to stand and pray. And Jesus is like, oh, you know what? You really need to sit or kneel when you pray. And the problem's not even that they love to pray in the synagogues or on the street either. The problem was that they loved to stand and pray in those places because they were places where they could be seen by others. So in other words, their prayer was not about God and not about honoring God and not about expressing their trust in God. In fact, you could take God out and they would still be praying because they weren't praying for God. They were praying for themselves. Why? This is big. Why would you ever do that? You do that because you're using prayer as a means to get what you want, which for the Pharisees was the approval and praise of men. And so they had a worldview, and their worldview deep down was, it's about me. Which is actually, James is going to pick up on this in James chapter 4, right? When he's talking about praying, and he's saying, you guys... You're praying, you're not getting anything from God. and you're, why? why? Why are you not getting anything from God? He says, because you're adulteresses. James was like really straight up. And you're like, how are you adulteresses? He's saying, because what's motivating your prayer, you're like having an affair with the world, basically, James is going to say. Because what's motivating your prayer life is the same thing that motivates the unbeliever. You're just using prayer to get from God what you want. It's your kingdom come. And... He must have learned that from Jesus because Jesus says to the Pharisees or about the Pharisees that they were taking something that was supposed to be about the glory of God and making it about glorifying themselves, which is the opposite of how someone who understands the gospel should pray. Right? And yet it's tempting because we're so used to doing everything in our lives for the promotion of ourselves and to get something for ourselves that will even take something as good as prayer and use it the same way, which is one reason we need Jesus' instruction on prayer, because it's just normal re religiosity to pray motivated by self-glory, and it doesn't even seem like a big deal. And so we have to learn to actively resist that, which is why Jesus says back in Matthew that when you pray, go into a room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father will reward them you. And obviously Jesus is not saying that it's always wrong to pray in public because the early church had prayer meetings. And even in the Old Testament, that was part of the purpose of the Psalms to give guidance to the people of God as they gather together to pray. And there are many other specific examples in the Bible of godly people praying in public and with other believers, which means that the issue is not praying in public. The issue is not praying with others. The issue is praying for the praise of others. And because Jesus is seeing how religious people, the religious people around him were using prayer as a means of exalting themselves, he's telling his followers in Matthew that it's not enough just to pray. We have to learn to apply the gospel to our prayers, which means rejecting these look-at-me self-righteous prayers. And 
pagan praying as well, which Jesus describes back in Matthew 6, verse 7, when he says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. And empty phrases is basically meaningless repetition, where you're saying the same words over and over and over again. And why? Again, that's the key. It's saying those words over and over and over again because you think of prayer in almost a magical way. You have a worldview, and it's your words or your technique or the specific way that you go about praying that somehow forces God into a position where he has to do what you say. And we actually saw a lot of that in Africa. And so many people would feel like they needed to go up to the mountain to pray because they thought God hears you when you pray at a certain place. And other people would always ask certain people to pray. I always got, Pastor, please, would you pray for me? Because they think the power is in the person praying. And some places I would go, I would find people using phrases like the blood of Jesus over and over and over again. And it's not because they couldn't think of something different to say. It's because they thought those words were like magic that would force God to act. And the problem, of course, with this way of saying, of praying, is that it's based on a completely wrong view of God. Like he's the kind of God up in heaven who doesn't want to help his children but someone does some ritual and God's like, oh man, that stinks. Now I have to do something because he said those magic words. That's not the God of the Bible and that's not the God revealed in the gospel and that's not why we pray as Christians either because if we're believers, the fact is he is our father. And now I'm preaching the gospel and quoting Jesus because Jesus says back in Matthew 6 verse 8, your father knows what you need before you ask him. To which, of course, a lot of people are like, uh, why pray then? Which is kind of the point. And it's why we need Jesus to teach us. Because we so instinctively think of prayer wrong. And it's because, biblically speaking, prayer is not so much for God as it is for us. It's a means that God has designed to do good to us and to help us have a real, living, continual relationship with him, which is why God does not want you to come doubting that he loves you if you're a Christian or trusting in your little prayer techniques, but instead trusting in his love and concern for you, which is a whole different way of praying that may seem obvious to some of you, but is not how most of the world thinks of praying and doesn't come naturally and is why we're going to spend the next few weeks learning from Jesus how to pray in light of the cross specifically. And stick with me now just for a little while longer because in prayer, what are we doing? And this is where it gets exciting in terms of understanding why this section is here in Luke 11. Why is this section here? Because in prayer, what are we doing? What's going on when you pray? And actually, if you just take a step back from Luke 11 and you think about the whole Bible, the context of the whole Bible, what is going on when God's people pray? And let me answer that question in kind of a funny way. I'll give you a little trivia question. Do you know the first place in the Bible that prayer is mentioned really? And its first place is in the Bible. There are often 
super important. Uh, so the first place God is angry, important. First place you read about the angel of the Lord, important. Those are usually pretty significant for helping you understand the rest. So where is the first place in the Bible that we find people praying? It's in Genesis 4, which is pretty early. Genesis 4, you have creation, you have fall, the fall, you have Cain and Abel, that's, and then that's Genesis chapter 4. And Genesis 4 ends, last verse, it says, at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord, which seems strange because you remember the story of Cain killing Abel, then Eve has Seth, Seth has a, some children, there's Enosh there, and after that, it says, at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord, which is a weird place to find that. What's going on? What's going on is that God had made a promise about how he was going to defeat Satan. And he was going to do it through the seed of Eve. Stick with me. And then Eve has two children, and one of them is righteous. And so what is Eve hoping? Is this the seed? And then Cain kills him. And so that's not just murder. That's like an attack on God's plan. It looks like God's plan is in trouble. Did Satan win? But God's faithful, and Eve has Seth, and Seth has more children, which is good for Seth, but it's good for the rest of us also because it says that God's plan is still on track. And how do those children respond? They start praying. And I'm fast-forwarding through a lot of biblical theology, the ins and outs. But what you get a glimpse of there, which gets clearer and clearer as you read the Bible, is that praying is really tightly linked with God's promises. And specifically with his promise of providing a solution to the problem of human rebellion. In other words, to his gospel plan. And that's why a lot of praying in the Bible looks the way it does. Because you read the prayers in the Old Testament. And it's usually this long rehearsal of God's saving acts. And then a quick like, Lord, do it. And that's, often, that's also why often when people pray for something specific in the Bible. And then God answers they respond with this long thanksgiving that doesn't even mention the specific prayer request being answered. I think of Hannah. You remember Hannah praying after she uh, was given Samuel? She doesn't even talk about Samuel. Or Solomon praying at the temple, the strangest building decoration, uh, the strangest building ded dedication prayer ever. He doesn't even talk about the, the bricks or anything like that. It seems strange, but it's because what are they really praying for? They're praying for God to fulfill his great big salvation promise. And so what's happening in Luke chapter 11? This is connected. What's happening is that Jesus has just told his disciples about the cross. This is the decisive next big step in God's salvation plan. And so this is a pivotal moment. And so the question now is, if this is God's plan for saving humanity and reversing the curse, how then do we pray now in light of that? How do we apply the gospel to our prayer life? And I hope that's making sense. But we, we need to spend some time learning to pray, of course, because we believe praying is a key characteristic of a disciple of Jesus. And of course, because we believe Jesus prayed, but also because we realize that the way we pray flows out of what we believe and is a reflection of what we actually believe about Jesus, about God, and about the gospel. 
And so learning to pray is not just a matter of learning techniques. And it's definitely not like some big extra burden being placed on our back. Like, what do we do? We've got to pray more. We've got to pray more. It's much bigger and more exciting than that. Because learning to pray begins with going back to what we believe about this whole great plan of what God's accomplishing through Jesus and understanding the significance of that and building our prayer life on that. Like, how would I pray if I believed God was in complete control? And how would I pray if I believed that God had a plan he was accomplishing through Jesus? And how would I pray if I believed the cross was central to God accomplishing that plan? And how would I pray if I believe God loved us because of Jesus? And how would I pray if I believe I come to God the Father in Christ? And how would I pray if I believe Jesus was the one who was going to bring in the kingdom? In other words, the next couple of weeks we're going to be asking, how at Cornerstone would we pray if we believe the gospel? Because that's the kind of praying that honors God. That's effective and that's good for us. And because we don't naturally pray that way. And because those are the exact kinds of questions that Jesus is answering as he teaches his followers about prayer. In Luke chapter 11, verses 2 through 13. Let's pray. Father, the gospel definitely reveals that we're needy. It reveals that we're, we're sinners who can't save ourselves. It exposes our hearts and demonstrates that we're not nearly as good as we think we are or as smart as we think we are or as capable as we think we are. When it comes to our relationship with you, God, we are completely, 100%, absolutely dependent we're, we're sinners who can't save ourselves. And Lord, we also realize we're, we're sinners, even as people who are saved, apart from the Spirit's work in our lives, we can't sanctify ourselves. And so we come to you. We see this. Praying is such a big thing. We want to learn to pray. And the, the first thing that we say to you, looking at the gospel, is that, Lord, we need you to teach us how. And we need you to create the desire. And Lord, even maybe now in the world, you, you, maybe one of the things you're doing is just bringing us to our knees so that we're not such self-confident people, but we recognize our need for you, not just physically, though, Lord, but spiritually. We ask, just like those disciples, Lord, would you teach us to pray? And when people think about Cornerstone Church, when we think about Cornerstone Bible Church, would we think, Ah, this is a church that gets the gospel, and that's demonstrated because this is a church that's humble, and, and, and it proves that it's humble by listening when you speak and speaking to you in prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Only you can do this. Amen.